Welcome back right. to SideQuest episode 21, and I believe this is Final Fantasy episode 9, and I have back with me my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Hey, it's good to be back and tackling this gold saucer that we, we left off at last time. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like we only get a touch of so much in the gold saucer, uh, knowing that so much is coming later. And in fact, I had forgotten and asked you in the pre-show whether I had missed the sort of iconic scene with the girl or guy that you can happen to uh, go on the adventure of the gold saucer with later. Sort of the marquee teenage moment, you might say. And Cloud is, of course, still, a, I believe, a teenager. He's either, or no, he was a teenager. Now he's 21. But back in Nibelheim, he was 20, he was 17. And so, hmm. Okay, yeah. well, in, yeah. In any case, you only get so little of the Corel story. Uh, we hear that Barrett is a, sort of to blame for that at first, and but not much else we get. But we do get a flashback from him before we go up to the gold saucer, uh, as well as a flash of a lot of resentment against Barrett and those who can afford to go to the gold saucer by the NPCs in Corel. Uh, poverty, or relative poverty in this case, seems to, to breed resentment or breed an external locus of control, as the psychologist would say, as if it is fate or someone else embodying fate that is responsible for your position in the world. Yeah, uh, it's sort of a mixture of that and just like um, depression and, and like even apathy, it seems like. Mm. Uh, there's, there's sort of like uh, harvesting useful things from the scraps of their old you know, uh, prosperity at this point. And there's certainly some characters who seem angry at Barrett, but like not angry enough to do anything about it, or, right. you know, they're sort of beaten down by time. Yeah, I like the idea of beat. That is what we say when we're very tired at the end of the day. That's what we say when somebody defeats us in any endeavor, you've beaten me. Um, and th that is, of course, you know, a very pejorative term for what people are not supposed to do with their, their children. <laughs> anymore um and so uh the fact that they're beaten is interesting because th that's a passive metaphor right that there is some hand that has delivered the beating to them to them like a hand of god or fate or barrett depending on where they put that blame but what's interesting is um i don't see what the value in blaming something outside themselves is for moving them towards a better future that, that's, I think, the apathy element that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are right next to the symbol of opulence. Rather than developing resentment for it, they should understand that this comes from an outflowing of wealth. Like, if you can afford to go waste money gambling and watching shows, then you're doing really well. Then the game, the game, you know, can work in the other direction. That would seem like incentive, potentially. Well, uh, the, the gold saucer is an interesting kind of reflection of of the op yeah as you say it's it's opulent and it's flashy um unnecessary but, to the extreme yeah yeah it's it's like it's like a version of of midgar in that in that sense mm. um uh kind of arboreal uh it's got these different kinds of nodes that you you can cruise around from one to the other. And like you say, you can't really do much there yet. So we can probably talk more about it another time. Um, but it, there, there's a sense that it's, it's all sort of, um, sort of empty as well. There, there's really no, no, there's not the crowd there that you might expect there to be. Well, and that's interesting because that echoes in our own reality, amusement parks and like Disneyland, but even more than Disneyland, which, you know, exists for, children during times of imprinting their moral values. And so it actually is, I think, as magical as magical can be. That's why Harry Potter takes place when he's very young at first, right? Uh, they're developmental stages. So there is a transformative or magical element going, going on there. But somewhere like Las Vegas, right? A hollow sort of place in the desert. And the desert is the place it would be, right? The place where there's actually nothing but illusion, mirages. And so something about the, a place like, like Las Vegas, is that it rings hollow because it's a place of pure amusement where you do not go to walk the path of the hero. You do not go there for a meaningful time. You go there for a fun, uh, sensually appealing time. And everything is sensually appealing. The girls, the opulence of the place, the, the neon signs, 
And that is what the golden saucer is, uh, is modeled after. Having just a good time, even, even your currency changes, right? It's a, it's a simulation within a simulation. But what I think is interesting, the question that comes from it is, what are we doing right now? Are we indulging in a game that is itself just pure amusement and has no meaning to the path of being in it that does not allow us to meaningfully use our time in order to walk the path of the hero as humans? Or are we just amusing ourselves um, and wasting our time? It, it again echoes to me the sort of question that you might say that Ito, the earthbound um, creator, might have asked. Like, what yeah. are we doing? And, and, or is it even more sophisticated that we are normally using our time well within the game insofar as we are pursuing a heroic narrative, but insofar as we pursue the lower mini-games that are offered here, these are lower pursuits, lower hang, hanging fruit, and during that time we will not be meaningfully uh, conveying our time. We will be demeaning ourselves. And perhaps that's what Dio, which is the name for Zeus in Greek, uh, who owns the Golden Saucer is supposed to represent. I'm not sure. He's a weird... Uh... Is he just wearing like a speedo at all times? I believe um, so. Yeah, he's totally—he's like a bodybuilder. Yeah, with his shirt. Yeah, with his V-shaped, like sort of pixelated form, and a speedo and legs. So he's—he's—he's he's, he's got ultimate confidence, right? He bears himself almost nude in front of everybody. He's like the opposite of the emperor with no clothes. He's very conscious of the fact, and and very happy about the fact that he has no clothes. He's. He's just the picture of success. <clears throat> he even mm -hmm. calls you boy. Like he's a father figure or like he is someone so much more successful than you that he would be a father figure. And in fact, he notices Cloud's sort of idolatry of, of Sephiroth, his idol worship, and mentions Sephiroth to sort of seemingly rankle Cloud a little and says, you know, I can see why boys of your age would like follow him there, there was a there was a like sort of an ambiguous element in how he put it as if cloud could be following this person as a fan or as like somebody who was personally attracted to sephiroth there's sort of a humiliating element in in how dio speaks to you and so i wonder if that's sort of like the self-humiliation you uh you endure when you waste your time in pure amusement which is oh, why you're doing saucer right right and i guess that would make sense if that was his um kind of cynical view of humanity based on the success uh, of his enterprise there it seems to have grown up uh after the disaster at corel because like at the bottom of the golden saucer is the old town of corel uh where the the room is where that fateful conversation between barrett and dine and uh, Shinra represented by Scarlet uh, took place um, so when you're cast down into the prison you can't really go anywhere uh, you're sort of funneled to this to this old um, I think it's called the mayor's house and uh, when you go in there that's where you find Barrett finally and, and figure out that he's not the one killing everybody with his machine gun arm but it's it's this other person with a machine gun arm who, who, who turns out of course to be Dine and then you get sort of like the rest of that flashback filled in. But, but I'm saying all this just to, I'm not clear whether the Golden Saucer was there before all of this happened to Corel or whether it's, it's grown up sort of from the, uh, the, the vacuum uh, left by the, the old city of Corel um, becoming this slum. So are you suggesting that it's like the embodied ghost of Corel? Like the sort of the uh, I don't know the uh, the dark side of Corel let manifest because they as a city have died and now they're they they've given birth to sort of an evil ghost like the sort of spirit of resentment becomes a a place of pure amusement it's almost like and I don't necessarily care to make this claim that almost sounds like something you know that somebody could connect to the idea of of Native Americans running casinos. <clears throat> just that the death of a culture leaves an evil ghost. And, and uh, as you say, like the, the idea that resentment could be creative is kind of interesting to me. Um, and I think it would be connected with a kind of cynical outlook 
uh, where you see like you see the route to success based on what has been done to you and you say okay I can do that I'll do that even better than you and I'll take your money and I'll you know rub your face in it and you won't even know it right you'll think you're having fun but it's spiritually like vacant you know I, I could totally see that um, as a you know a, a sort of a logical uh, vengeance of the um, of the destroyed culture, yeah, or the the broken society, um, and and that it's connected with technology is not super surprising. Like I think that's you know that's sort of the dominant image as you're you're on that cool cable car in the sky thing that's going up there. You see like all the flashing lights. You hear the the sounds of of chatter and electronic amusement um, kind of blaring from all the different places. But it's really but there is something that's kind of cool about it, right? And there is something magical about the uh, the date that you go on. It's like very memorable, and it's and that's the part that you remember about the gold saucer, right? Not so much the uh, uh, the heavy thematic uh, stuff. So so there's there's something there. Um, and as we'll see, Dio has a has a softer side as well. A little later, I think. I do think it, it's it, at the very least double valenced um, because you know just to jump back to a place like Disney World, there are even adults who find it very meaningful. And, you know, having read several articles about the, uh, the sort of Imagineers and the people that work in those parks as well, and just how much, how dedicated they are to giving people a good time, it, there, there, there is something memorable, something that sticks with you about it. So there, though I think there is a vacuous element, there, there is some sort of, there is some meaningful element too. There's some information to be derived. Um, I mean, at the very least, it tells you something about human nature that part of amusement parks is facing threats in a sort of ordered and approachable manner, like going down roller coasters and mm -hmm. things like that. And when you're gambling, for example, at, um, at the Golden Saucer, you're, you're engaging with threat, right? You are going to lose your money if you are not smart enough here. And so you're also suffering limbic system activation, your amygdala right, and your hippocampus are going to, whenever you lose, give you that little failure hit, take your testosterone or your serotonin down a little, and you're going to feel some emotional dysregulation. And so that's why you go, because you also feel hope. So you feel a lot of emotion at these places, even though it's manufactured. And so it, it's sort of like you're consciously tying yourself to the mast and listening to the siren in the way this is Sorry. Oh, that was good music. Speaking of the, uh, yeah, the tying yourself to the mess, that was something that you were talking about with the, um, like the, uh, the journey of Odysseus with respect to Costa del Sol a while ago being like the Lotus Eaters. Um, I don't know how far you could kind of trace that, that theme of, uh, different, different parts of his journey. Um, through this thing but but there is you know this this is where you're you're captured uh and and thrown into jail um you know something like being in the in the den of the cyclops um mm. i don't know yeah i don't know about the the sirens maybe it's mixing metaphors too much to try to to pick it to pick out different parts of the game that correspond with the different parts of the journey, but I, I, I see. Sirens in that you're in, engaging with your pleasures in a yeah. strained fashion. Right, right, right. The the um, the only part of the golden saucer that you really get to see so far uh, is, you know, the um, you have to see the battle. Um, whatever it's called the battle stage but uh the wonder square is where you meet kate sith right you have to go there as well before that scene will take place um and i was wondering if we could just like make some sense of what kate sith is doing in this game uh well he seems to be another absurdity thrown into an absurd situation thrown into another absurd situation thrown into another absurd situation. So the first one is that you are like a primate staring at a, a glowing screen and doing something. The, the second absurd situation is the whole 
situation inside of the game that you find yourself interacting with. It's so absurd that this guy is back from the dead and killing you and you're sucking the life force out of the planet. And that's also absurd because there's a strong correlation with our actual planet from that. Um, and then within that, you're, you're in the Golden Saucer, which is itself an absurd place. And then now you have the most absurd creature you've ever seen in the, the, in the history of this game. It is a, there's the Mog, which is, is a historic Final Fantasy creature, sometimes called a Moogle, which is like a little troll creature with wings, all, often um, lightly shaded with two, um, like, sort of buck stalag, stalagmite-like teeth and, uh, like, devil horns. Um, I don't know if this one has wings. It might not. And with a cat with a horn on top of it, a blowhorn. And okay. yeah, so it is utterly absurd. And I think at this point, we, we will eventually realize that it was an, it's an android being controlled from outside. But at first, we just meet this utterly absurd thing. The game is making us swallow quite a lot at once. Like, this is not something we had been priorly prepared for, exactly. And, and then it gives us no choice, like you mentioned in text yesterday. He says, I don't care what you say when whoever you're with looks to you and says, is this okay, Cloud? He says, I don't care what you say. And so that's sort of a non-heroic moment from you. You sort of get bullied into relationship with this character. It's, yeah, it's weird because uh, it's, a, it's a fortune telling uh, device. Right. Like um, it tries to tell your fortune and it seems to be failing at it or it's not going the way it wants it to. I'm not clear that yeah what kind of a, a cover is that um for a reason to join the party which is to to see where this fortune is going to lead because it's never seen something like this before um it's it's a really odd uh yeah like cover story uh, for for them to use if it is some kind of infiltration and the way that it uh, approaches you when uh, when you're coming out of when you're looking for for Barrett, who's like kind of lost his cool, like he's he's gone off in a huff. Um, it seems, as you say, to be really really messing with the uh, the emotional like tenor of the whole situation, and maybe that's part of the absurdity when you have sort of a disconnect between the, the levels of, of sublimity and um, ridiculousness that's like thrown in your face that way. Yeah. Uh, it's, I know we, yeah. Well, I, I just, yeah, I just think that that's something kind of cool that the game is doing. Um, I know Kate Sith is like kind of a weird character, but it, it's interesting to, to try to make sense of it in that way. Well, and it's interesting too, because we haven't explored this very much, but sort of a typical anime, sort of um, uh, anime theme is having the sort of way overdone comic relief character. that's sort of mm. underdeveloped and super loud and obnoxious and not even necessarily particularly funny or integrated, perhaps, you know, indicating a less sophisticated sense of humor in the culture because, you know, perhaps far more overdeveloped in other ways. And so that remains funny, which is sort of an interesting idea on humor. But um, he sort of is so absurd that it, it makes the reality of multiple perspectives on the situation always apparent. And sort of that, that can kind of itch at your mind. But I also wondered what, to what extent he represented Reeve as a Shinra employee. Like he still forces himself into situations in a way that Shinra elites always would do anyway, even though he considers himself sort of the better version of them or the more morally superior one and and what is it? is he a publicist what is his job because yeah, i don't remember because uh... i want to make a connection between the fact that he has a loudspeaker on this cat and suggest that even though i know heidegger is like technically the public relations guy or public safety guy scarlet is development i think reeve might run the newspapers Interesting. But I'm not sure. And I don't want to just base this interpretation on that, but if he did, the fact that he had a loudspeaker and was pushing a mog with a cat on top of it would be like the idea of propaganda, where you're just mm -hmm. putting forward a chimera 
uh, of what language is supposed to be. You're putting falsity plus words together, and it comes up with this absurd amalgamation uh, that's loud and rude, uh, rather than you know something natural that you're supposed to represent, the truth. And mm -hmm. whether this could represent sort of the dark side of Reed. Um, but I, I ha I'll have to look up what his actual job is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting, uh, his limit break is like, a, is like a random thing as well, right? It's like a roll of the dice kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, and Tifa's is like a slots game. Um, so there, you know, there's something interesting going on there where there's like a kind of continuum of um, like reliability with cloud. Like, you know, it's going to do a lot of damage. That's kind of a given to uh, Tifa where you have like some control at least uh, and you can time it correctly and it'll work fine to Kate Sith. And I, I don't remember exactly cause I haven't used him in my party yet. Um, but I think his limit is, is basically just like kind of up for chance. Um, and it maybe increases a little bit with, with each level, but uh, he's, yeah, he's like, he represents, it seems like, yeah, that both that, that kind of, propagandistic um, disregard for the truth, but also like a kind of um, random element of, of chance that is supposed to be funny or fun or sort of so bad that it's funny or something like that. Hmm. Well, speaking of things that are so bad, how about Dine and what he's gone through and Barrett? We have revealed for us the fact that Barrett went on to persuade the city council of Corel to build a Shinra reactor under the influence of Scarlet, who later will shoot his and Dine's arm and effectively break their friendship, symbolically indicating Shinra getting between them, and which they'll have to fight about, so says Dine, who's now, like you were saying earlier about imitating to the logical extreme, has now seen what Shinra is willing to do, burn down his city, just as Cloud saw an agent of Shinra, Sephiroth, burn down his own city. He, uh, Shinra now being linked to multiple disasters. And if you have Yuffie, even more with Wutai. Mm. They really are represented as an oppressive force. Well, um, Barrett, Barrett is shown like Cloud, like Tifa, to, ha to have his own demons and to have his own reasons for hating Shinra, which is becoming seemingly through shared perspectives, a darker and darker force in reality. Yeah, well, the darkest moment is like when you think that he's gone on this killing rampage, right? So there's like a there's a certain amount of redemption in this in this portion of the story for Barrett because he hasn't gone down that that path of of total um, just like hate <laughs> and uh, and total a disregard for life and and self destructiveness. Well, right, and he's actually technically had it worse because. He, uh, he is now caring for Dine's child, whereas Dine thought that his child and his wife were dead. Actually, it turns out his child is alive, so he has far more than Barrett if he can come back to himself, because that's his child, Marlene. Mm -hmm. But he, he goes the other way with it. He goes the path of Cain. He decides he wants to kill. He wants to keep killing and iterate killing. And his, he creepily says that, her mother is, and again, this is one of these strong moments in a narrative where it says her mother is waiting for her. She's lonely. Very creepy stuff right there that we just deal with immediately as a kid. We're like, yeah, that makes sense that somebody could go that bad and then want to kill their kid. And well, Barrett again outclasses this man just as he took in another man's kid and just as he changed the ways of the past in order to try and promote a better future. And well, there's something interesting there before I even finish that point, which is do you think it was Dine and his element that set the fire to the Mako reactor, which then got the strong reaction back from Shinra in the first place, that, that it would actually have been a good situation had Dine not overreacted, that he's actually the one totally at fault for this situation. And that's why he's been totally crushed by it. That seems possible, but that, I don't remember enough of the, the background there, like I know there's another scene at Corel later too with the uh, the train, right? Like you mentioned the other day. But, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember whether we get any more evidence for that one way or the other. So I, I think 
I think personally that it's it's more it seems more in line with the way the game is going to just say that Shinra, you know, did it just to spite them, right? Like they were like, oh, you you guys didn't like welcome us right away. Well, then we're gonna show you. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that could be. But you know, when Cloud said "what for," it there seemed to be an idea, and and why he he said that that like Shenmue generally doesn't act without purpose. Like they're a business, and so they can be painted as evil. And this is under the former president. We God knows what this current president is going to do. Um, that they they seem to usually have profit in mind, and that spite wasn't usually the most profitable thing to do. But, yeah. uh, but, but regardless of that point, which, you know, is, is sort of okay, I want to focus on the redemptive aspect of Barrett's fight with Dine and his taking in of Dine's child, because what he seems to be doing is what Cloud has been doing. We've been talking about Cloud walking the path of the hero and not being perfect at embodying and having regressions like back to the Shinra uniform and such and back to uniformity, but uh, being able to do it and to do it more and his effect is even increasing in the world right through his limit break this blade beam which where you shoot and hit somebody and if you kill them the next person gets damaged too and so his effect in the world is uh expanding but we see barrett sort of in an ideal society kingdom of heaven sort of way uh embodying the same principle the archetype of the hero walking the path of the hero himself turning mm -hmm. from the path of Cain. He, he too could have been just as dark as Dine, and it even shows sort of the prejudice of those who are, who are looking at him to sort of guess at him first, right? His own teammates are the ones who think, maybe it was Barrett, you know, that sounds really bad. Just like the sort of lower class, um, or rather dialect speaking and thus indicating lower class character in Harry Potter gets suspected in the second book, uh, Hagrid. You know, I was even noticing their similarity of language. Hagrid with the yes, Y-E-H, while Barrett with the yas, the Y-A's, the ya, yeah, and also swears the, the vast most, and also walks away during one time when the people are talking about doing the thinking so that he can just do the acting. He's represented as, as being the, the loosest canon. He even has a canon on his arm, indicating that he's not very careful mm -hmm. and, um, with his thinking or his acting. And so the fact that somebody with a cannon arm was killing a bunch of people. Well, that makes sense to you to some degree that it could be Barrett. And yet that's what makes his choice so profound. It hasn't been. He's actually the person taking responsibility for the situation opposite from what you expect, walking the path of the hero, showing his good nature, and then fighting for what's right ultimately and doing it himself. Like he said, he was going to the whole time. And so, you know, there's a, tran a transcendent element to his lower station in this moment. He is sort of lowering himself to deal with the problems of his situation in this very impoverished prison-like place. And even though this is sort of much lower culture, even than seemingly Midgar and its slums, he lowers himself to the situation, handles the situation, and thus transcends the situation and walks the path of the hero. Uh, whereas his, his friend Dine has lowered himself to this situation to walk the path of Lucifer or Cain and mm -hmm. trying to maximize his destruction and destructive capacity. And yet he's in a prison with limited access to people, right? And so he's, he's even gone about that in a terrible way. If he truly wanted to maximize destruction, he should go the Sephiroth way, mm -hmm. uh, you know, summon Meteor. Yeah, well, he's, he seems to be basically insane at this point, right? Like he lives alone, he's the boss of the prison desert town, like the, sh the shell of his old hometown. So a perfect uh, Lucifer figure. In he's the out, yeah, and he's out there by the chasm, I guess, that he like fell into or whatever, or at least it echoes that same kind of motif. And, and there's those two um, grave sites there uh, with, the, with the crosses made out of pointy sticks that are sort of leaning crazily um, and, and they make more like, they look more like X's than crosses sort of. Yeah. It's, it's a really, uh, yeah, it's, it's so sort of sudden um, the way that, that 
that it ratchets up the drama there. Um, and it's also sort of sudden the way that it's solved, you know, like you, Barrett does have his one-on-one -on -one battle, which is, you know, yeah, very heroic. Like he's embodying that, that, that archetype in that moment. And, um, and presumably you win, right? And so then Dine uh, kind of lumbers off to the, to the edge of the abyss and just lets himself drop in. Uh, and then he's gone. And that's, that's it. Like, just like that, it's over. Oh, now I understand what that form of the cross is. Oh, why the, it's inverted for Satanists because that's like a suicide symbol. Because that's what he does, right? He, yeah. He puts yeah. his hands out and then he falls. And so he makes an inverted cross, putting his head into the ground. And so it's also a symbol of ignorance too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, putting your head into the ground. And so it's a very symbolic way to die because it is the taking away of your consciousness forever because of how unconscious you are and how little you understand even the symbol which you are embodying. And so it's interesting that you talk about the two crosses and sort of their weird shape because in Dante, in Canto 13 specifically, in Circle 7, Sub-Circle 2, Violence Against Oneself, um, both squandering one's money, being ripped apart like Acteon by hounds, or suicide, where one is a tree. One is a disfigured tree, a, a form of a cross. Mm -hmm. That's what Paul believed of Christ and why he could not at first accept him as the coming of the, as the come Messiah, the arisen Messiah, um, because he had hung upon a tree. And there was a prophecy that he who hangs upon a tree is cursed and the son of God could not be cursed in his mind. But he did go over that eventually. But so there's, there's this, echoing of suicide or this inversion of sacrifice that this man has made a sacrifice of others whereas he should have made a sacrifice of himself he has spilled the blood of others whereas he should have spilled his own blood and so i think he's also a moment of self-revelation for barrett because barrett sees not only how far he could have gone wrong and has gone right but also just how far he went wrong in being a part of avalanche because he was doing precisely the same thing as Stein, but on an even greater scale Mm. he was sacrificing there's, others instead of himself yeah there's a uh there's a definite like glance back at midgar too because dine tosses you that pendant uh before he destroys himself uh finally um and so you have this thing which you're supposed you've been asked to um show to marlene at some point uh, so you, you're, you could sort of be thinking about Midgar again, although of course you can't actually go back there yet and check on her and see what's going on because um, there's you don't have like a way back in at this point. But the uh, the way the camera, so just one last thing about that scene, which I thought was cool, is like the camera finally um, pans up from this, uh, you know, this weird cot and like, shack that he's got there and those grave sites which apparently don't actually have bodies in them right because the body's burned he thought but in one case at least she didn't so she's alive somewhere else right so it's like yeah as you say totally ignorant but then it looks it finally looks up and above the chasm and above the the desert is that that beautiful bright sky uh kind of horizon that we saw back at mount Corel, right this sort of like the beauty of nature and the and the world um, that is uh, still there in spite of all of the terrible things that Shinra and its victims have been doing. Yeah, I think that's also sort of Dante-esque in that mm -hmm. at the end of each of his canticles and even more, most importantly at the end of the Inferno in Canto 34, the last word is Stella, stars. Mm -hmm. You see the stars again, you, you rejoin with your goal. You see your goal again and thus you see the path of being you are to take and thus you are aligned with yourself, the father and the son, the quarterback and the head coach, um, you know, the quarterback and the wide receiver for the touchdown. Um, and so it's as if hope is reentering the world as a hero takes a stand and a good story enters the mind of those, uh, those present. But also I think it says that it doesn't matter what's happened before. And this is sort of the old Christian and sort of Paulina idea and the let the dead bury the dead idea, right? Because this is actually in a, a burial ground. And so sort of like 
you know, The Lion King 2, where there's a fight in a elephant burial ground with these negative elements that um, you can be a hero at any time in your life. You just need to start walking that path. And you, you will find in your everyday life moments in which that can be done. And it doesn't matter what lies in your past. It matters what you're doing now. Because all of that's already gone, your past. And so it's haunting you. And so you have to put it in the past. You have to bury the dead so that you can walk with the living. And uh, I think that's what Barrett is doing under the imitative influence of Cloud. Though perhaps he will also offer himself as somebody to imitate for Cloud, who perhaps is nested within an even deeper set of lies or, or self-delusions than Barrett, which is incredible to think of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a funny. I mean, it's like um, as you as you progress through the game, you are sort of going deeper into the deceptions and and like working them out um, level by level. Uh, so it's it's an interesting way to um, kind of think about the even the very concept of leveling up, right? Like you gain in strength, you gain in abilities and at the end of the gold saucer thing you you're no longer stuck in the desert but can actually cross it freely with the buggy you know which is super cool um but at the same time yeah like you still don't know what's going on cloud has not dealt with his his past and his dark side yet yeah there's still a voyeuristic element to it. We've been dealing with Sephiroth sort of as a collective phenomenon. Like we've never seen Cloud go one on one with him yet, even though that will have been the story. But we 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 haven't had it and now seeing Barrett go through this, Barrett is, though part of the main party, not the main character, not our protagonist, not the guy we serve we first play as alone when we jump off that train. That's Cloud with the sword, the prototypical weapon. And sort of that's an interesting comment that Barrett has a gun, um, and that Cloud has a noble sword, that there's, you know, something, I don't know, there's something more heroic seeming about Cloud, even in a sense of proportion. Um, and maybe we can think about that with his sort of divine golden hair aspect, like a sand. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but Barrett is, um, Barrett has the show this time around. And even though we play as Barrett and we make the decisions uh, for him in the last fight, he's mostly autonomous during this right. time. He's away from you. He's making his own decisions. You have to kind of run around and follow him. So he is offering himself as an example within the game, mostly being played out by someone else um, or the game itself, the path itself. And so it's, the game is sort of modeling for us what it is that we'll have to do, confront our past honestly and make a choice, I guess, opposite from Sephiroth. When we realize our whole life has been a lie, will it break us and make us hate everything like dying and say, make us want to say things like, I want to destroy everything? Or, or will we wake up and then use what time we have afterwards? It's almost mm -hmm. like, yeah, what do, you deal, what do you do when your narrative shifts completely? Lose faith in narratives and try and destroy all narrative having beings by becoming an obstacle in the way of anybody you find by discovering like what their narrative is and trying to put yourself in the way of it? Or do you realize that then you can be helpful to as many people as possible? Uh, like the hero, who's like the ultimate tool. He helps people get to their goals, and that's what's most heroic about him. And that's why he's the archetype. He is the archetype of that which helps you to get to your goals. Yeah. Uh, and to defeat, you know, the opposite archetype, which is the person that, regardless of your goals, will try and get in the way of them. Um, and it seems like with Cloud, what he's going to have to realize is that person is actually himself. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, way that you, the way that you finally get out of the prison um, is sort of related to beating dying and and having the proof of it in the in the pendant uh but it's also you have to you have to win the chocobo race which is kind of a weird arbitrary uh like ritual um for getting out of prison apparently but it's kind of cool right that you then you do sort of enact that 
um, that that race of uh, of being like being freed, being lifted off the ground, and and moving uh, fast through this whole like kind of microcosm of the world, right? It has like different little areas in the Chocobo race, um, uh, above ground, below ground, underwater, in space, like all, all over the place. And you can choose whether you want to try to manually control the Chocobo that you're, you're sort of graced with, like a really fast Chocobo apparently, um, by Esther, this apparently kind of strange um, person who trains Chocobos and jockeys. Uh, or you can you can let it go automatically, um, and you'll I think you'll win automatically like every time if you just let it run. Oh really? Yeah, because it's you know you're on the fastest chocobo in the race. There's no real competition. Um, but I definitely put it on manual and like thought the course was shorter than it was and was pooped by the end. I had to redo it once. Oh man, I had to redo it once because I got beaten by a sprint at the end because I thought I had to save a little more. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It, the, yeah. Right before that, though, um, before that, you also uh, find the next, the next summon, which seems to be kind of a theme we've been following. So uh, did, you, did you pick that up in the corner of the room? I did get Rama. I have yet okay. to use Rama, but I am looking forward to it because we talked about his sort of, you know, Egyptian forebear with like Ra, which is a god of light or the sun, and then eye or awareness, like Horus, or um, the falcon, very similar to how um, Apollo is far-sighted and also embodied by the sun. Um, and in fact, the two titans, Hyperion, the god who sees all, he embodies with the same epithet from when he's referred to in the Thrynikia episode in the Odyssey as well as Helios, the god of the sun, who's the son of Hyperion. He takes on both aspects. And so he's awareness and conscious intellect. Um, and so, uh, it's funny, I'm, uh, I, I'm forgetting exactly why I was making that connection. I know we were getting right to the end and you just asked me that good well, question. The irony of it then is that you didn't, you didn't actually pick it up. You didn't see it like shining in the corner of the room. No, but I did pick up Rama. Yeah, okay, so oh, that's man. what I'm saying. And so, yeah, interesting. Yes, I did pick it up, but okay. I haven't gotten a chance to use it. Um, oh, okay, okay. And so, yeah, I like the idea of the Chocobo race because what gets you out of prison is having skills and having the necessity of using them uh, to win a race and thus develop the habit of winning as if that's what it takes to make it in society. You have to be in a habit of being successful over and over and over. Again, and you have to essentially do it yourself, though, if you live in a sort of rich and kind enough society, sort of like this golden saucer one you're in, uh, perhaps you will be given tools that uh, effectively make your success automatic. Yeah. Um, that, so that you never have to find yourself in this sort of place, again, if you just sort of follow the rules. Um, and what's interesting is when you go manual, that's when you can lose not when you're going out automatic, like you say. And it was, in fact, operator error, my own error, right. that uh, made me have to play again. Uh, I like the idea that you have to be on a bird because you're a free bird, right? You're harnessing sort of your spirit and you're freeing yourself with your spirit by harnessing it, by embodying skill, by taking the time necessary to learn a skill in order to um, make your way yourself. And that seems to be what, you can do so long as you make it good with the boss too. So you have to show that you can behave correctly and, they, and then that you've embodied a skill. And that strikes me as a very strong metaphor for what the ideal prison would be, regardless of what they actually are. Hmm. And then you get the buggy, right? So you don't actually keep the chocobo. It's um, sort of that, that gift to get out of jail free uh, once you've, you've put in the, the work down in, you know, in Barrett's um, past and whatnot. But then you have this cool, like, sports car dune buggy thing that apparently can cross shallow rivers and deserts uh, and is just rad. Like, it looks really cool. And you can, um, you can actually take it with you back to, uh, back to the other continent. If you drive it straight into Costa del Sol, they'll... Um, It'll basically go along the cargo ship with you, and then you can drive it around back uh, back around Junon too, 
Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a cool part of the game because you also now have the manipulate materia. Yes. And with that, you can start getting some really useful enemy skills that are um, healing skills and, um, and the big guard that like it puts a barrier and haste on all of your party members at once. It's like wow. super useful. Uh, but you, you only get it if you have the manipulate ability because uh, then you have the enemy cast it on your party, which of course is how you get enemy skills. Yeah. So I feel like this part of the game is like, as we were saying before, you, you sort of accelerate in your, in your growth and in the places and the freedom that you have to go to them. Uh, and it's like pretty exponential at this point. If you go and start getting some of the, you can also go back and fight the Zalem and get beta, which is super powerful. It does like a thousand damage to all enemies with yeah. fire damage. It's so cool. I, I highly recommend it. I'm going to take some time to get big guard and that. And so manipulate, that's not the same as transform that was being sold for 5,000 kill. No, the manipulate comes with Kate Sith. Oh, it comes awesome. equipped with it. Okay, cool. Because yeah, that point strikes me exactly as a video game or story narrative modeling the process of education and moving through mm -hmm. the world. That as you start to get better or capable of gaining your own skills and developing the consciousness necessary in order to wield those skills, as we were talking about last time, then your domain of expertise and thus motion within the world expands, your territory expands, and thus your speed necessary to move around it also expands. Like you are, you get out of jail with a chocobo, you're moving faster than normal because you've harnessed yeah. your spirit. Now you have a buggy, which is now the manifestation of that in the world with uh a less limited access to the world. You can get across things that you used to not be able to. You can uh, now cross things much faster and safer than otherwise you become more secure based on your skill within a larger domain of expertise. And thus you have access to uh, more opportunities as well, right? Like things that used to be out of your reach, like defeating the Zalem and um, getting him to cast bait on you and then being able to use that very powerful skill. That was just beyond your domain of competence. And now it's something that you can just go back and do for fun fairly quickly. Um, it's like somebody who, who can now, who's done like an Olympic level floor routine, looking back on like doing a backflip. It's like, oh, that's not so hard to do now. Um, <laughs> it's a lot like that because the Midgar Zalem will still whap one of your characters randomly out of the battle. So you got to hope that it's not the one who has enemy skill. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's not too bad. It's like, you can you can also as it as it shows you right you can manipulate your enemies now you can make them work for you and you can have them you know teach you their their best skills which will then make your going a lot easier uh and so to the point where like the next fight against the turks is kind of a joke like they they're talking about who they like and you're overhearing them and then they're like oh oh crap they're here and then they fight you and they're just like they're not even a challenge. You just you just totally destroy them. They run away. It's it's awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like you've shown this growth now. Yes. You're now actually like a hero with a real mission, and they claim to have the same mission, but they're just sort of an annoyance on your way. They're only two of them fighting against you. They're less organized. They're less disciplined, just talking about who they like, like the Trojans versus the Achaeans. But I wanted <laughs> to say that I do think it supports our, our interpretation of Kate Sith and Reeve as sort of a publicist and propagandist in that he, the, the literal material that he comes with is manipulate. <laughs> yes, and transform. And he transform. has to transform as well. Well, that's interesting because transformation seems to be the positive aspect of what manipulation is. Manipulate, like, destroys the form of something in order to make it something that it's not. Whereas mm -hmm. transform changes something from what it is into something, ideally, that is now something better adapted to the moment. Um, yeah, but this transform its spell is mini it makes yes. you a little weak version and then the next one which is it's almost like leveled up when he comes with it and it'll soon level up and then it'll cast frog which yeah. is so annoying so annoying it is so yeah i noticed that too so i guess the transform here is also a negative connotation just like manipulate it's, it's yeah producing something to something less than it was in some respect so mini you're down to size you're smaller so perhaps that's also a media thing you make somebody seem smaller than they are and then, of course, the ultimate thing, turning someone into a toad, calling someone disgusting and primitive, and, you know, smearing them. Yeah. Uh, 
And so that's, that's interesting, transforming one's image effectively. But Toad is super annoying. But yeah, so that I get, I, I was suggesting earlier what uh, in the pre-show is another parallel, that you have this like parallel hero group would be put out by Shinra. Mm -hmm. And you would think that they would be a lot better than you. I mean, so just a couple of things about them is, A, where are all the soldier soldiers, the ones we've heard so much about? Why aren't they hunting you? Where's the elite group? Are you still, and is, is, that a power, is that a problem of perception for us that like, are these actually like the losers, the, the, the not even soldier group, the Turks that are being sent after you because you're so inconsequential even though you think you're going to save the world? Um, so yeah, I guess those are my two questions. A, are the Turks actually an elite unit and, or are they knowingly a crummy unit? And where are all these soldiers to come get you if you are actually a threat? I mean, you did destroy a Mako reactor after all. So that's a, I mean, that's a question that you can always ask, I think, about video games, like just because of the way that the difficulty is um, essentially scaffolding for you to climb up, right? And like you never fight someone that you are unable to, to defeat as long as you like know a little bit about what you're doing. Uh, and that's, that's something that has changed a lot from like the very first uh, arcade games and stuff where it was just like super hard from the very beginning and you just like lost quarters if you didn't know what you were doing to where it's like the game essentially like trains you up and makes you into something uh, which is capable of overcoming it, you know? And I think you could ask the same question about Dio too. Like where does he fit into this, this power hierarchy within the world like he apparently has these machines which can just like n neutralize your party easily uh and and his battle arena like you are not nearly ready to to compete with the the enemies that are in there uh but which apparently are his you know command so I, yeah i i think that the turks are to a large extent also like kind of comic relief but but insofar as they reflect your own party then, and, and how important or unimportant you might be, then it's a little bit of bitter, bitter humor. Yeah, and something about Dio that you just said about um, him is it makes, me, it's, it makes me think, especially with his relationship to talking about Sephiroth and some guy with a cape just coming through and with a number one on his hand, whatever that means, <laughs> and being in a speedo, speedo like an 80s guy, and this, of course, being a 90s game, is that he's almost like an old ideal that's now been replaced by Sephiroth with a more feminine or in, intelligent uh, or contrived end. That he, he, he is sort of the more primitive model like the old Terminator with the T-1000 in the same way that old games are more primitive in that they just embody action. And then mm -hmm. next stage, action, next stage, action, next stage. Whereas now that has morphed from sort of just purely embodied ritualistic action into a more consciously formulated narrative where right. you don't just move forward with your little dopamine kicks towards a goal, but you actually understand the reason why by constructing a story, giving you reasons for doing the things that you're doing, aiming towards an ultimate end, which you even begin to see in like games like Mario, right? Like there is a princess to go get at the end. So there's, there, there's an, there are the elements of narrative structure there, though you don't get much in there. Donkey Kong as well has stolen your girl, you gotta go get her. Um, right. And then you get all the way up to the most sophisticated embodiment of that, which is of course the RPG, where your actions are embodied narrative, where you play just as much for the story as you do for the action itself. And so Dio is sort of like an old ideal in that he's sort of the action hero slash former way to play the game slash more primitive, less sophisticated way to uh, spend one's time. That mm -hmm. the modern video game of the highest manifestation of it as the RPG with the most sophisticated narrative structure um, and thus requiring the most sophisticated um, consciousness to appreciate it um, is that you're spending your time totally different from people earlier. You, we are, it is, the RPG as a mark, not of the decadence of the culture, but of the transcendence of its former limitations. That even with our technology of video games, which people are quick to disparage, just to jump on like sort of an imitative bandwagon because everybody still plays video games regardless of what people say. Yeah. Um, 
they they're they're getting far more in you know they're leaning towards mythological stories and just embodying those in bigger and bigger forms like they have dragons and magical powers and giant scale good versus evil wars whether they be in space or in uh you know in fairy or fantasy realms it's like the stories are just getting the same stories are just getting magnified by the technology and that doesn't strike me as necessarily bad but actually really cool and an embodiment of that which is most real the archetypes in our time yeah it's it's interesting too that the games that tend to be most popular um seem to kind of bifurcate along those two those two types of game right like there's the games which are sort of mindless enjoyment um which have a ton of popularity like all kinds of little like block breaking games you can play on your phone uh and different kinds of uh like social online multiplayer games that kids spend a lot of time playing like shooting each other uh and dancing around and stuff <laughs> and Fortnite, um which i you know am intentionally kind of disparaging there which is probably not fair because i've never played it it looks really fun kids seem to like it um, but it definitely doesn't have quite the same uh depth <laughs> of story or narrative or anything like that symbolic symbolic um richness but the other really popular games are these these rpgs that people get really really into you know to the point where it's uh you know it's it's a little bit like um unclear to me where where you can even call these two such different experiences by the same medium of video game you know like one is is so much um more akin to the uh the nuanced sort of stories that people once had to um learn years how to read uh and you know took really seriously um and you know in, in some places people still do well, I think that's the metaphor of sort of the pyramid or the dominance hierarchy and just the transcendence of the human personality and what it can become, that that's how different people can be. That the people at the base and the people at the pinnacle are as different as a different species, and yet they're still the same. Um, because their personalities can be completely different based on how they perceive the world and the skills they have and the consciousness necessary in order to wield those skills. And that, you know, that the world has something to offer to everybody in that respect, right? There are like sort of mindless racing games, uh, which are fun and can be the most sophisticated fun you can want to have. And that's fine. But you can also get this narrative richness too. And you can take it to depths that people have never explored. And that's also really fun and also really useful for humans because we're made to explore. And so you, you seem to explore to the depths that your light is capable of penetrating to. And that seems to be part of the nature of what the meaning of life is for each particular person, and why that's difficult to solve in a non-individual way. Because it is what you are capable of doing that defines your sphere of action within the world and thus what you have to do in order to live a meaningful and purposeful existence. And so Barrett does that in one way, Cloud will have to do it in another, and yet, they walk the path together, but also alone. Yeah. Yeah, I find that kind of interesting too, because the gold saucer is sort of this um, this this trap into which you can be lured. So it is like the sirens, right? Like you can spend a lot of time just playing yes. the, the mini games that are, that are there and racing chocobos. You can just like later and all your time fun. catching chocobos and racing chocobos, and and you'll you won't you won't continue the game, and that's sort of yeah, that's an option. That's a way to play the game. It is a sand trap. But something interesting even about that is that you do build capacity because it's racing those chocobos that gets you that gold chocobo that gets you nice of the round, which gets you the capacity to beat Emerald Weapon, which is sort of the ultimate achievement, though possibly just an ultimate extension of what you were just saying, a sand trap mm. or a yeah. siren, because you have, you have expressed that view before, that indulging in those ultimate side quests, those ones that draw you totally away from the narrative of the game can uh well it does sort of ruin the game when you get nice of the round right because the beating emerald weapon is so much more extraordinary 
than defeating Sephiroth. Because Sephiroth is fairly easily out, easy after doing that. So I don't know if it maybe it also suggests sort of what it takes to be as a part of the Pareto distribution that you have to devote a mad amount of time to enslaving yourself to seemingly rigid and uh, inconsequential games in order to develop massive capacity to uh, move throughout the world. Uh, like insofar as you enslave yourself to building skill, you will thus free yourself later in life in your ability to manifest that skill at will. Yeah. Well, there's also like to the point where some people who play these games really, really well, like the, the fun um, popular ones, not the RPGs usually, but sometimes the RPGs too, they can just like be kind of performers and they can become competitors as well. There's, you know, professional gamers now out there who, um, you know, people watch that and people, advertisers pay a lot of money to, to get to have people watch that. Um, and it's, so it's kind of interesting how, as you say, there, there's at a certain point, not just a psychological or sort of philosophical benefit to delving into the game in, in certain ways, but even a, a practical, uh, although extremely rare, right? The, the top of the top um, actually make a living and, you know, gain fame and, and status and, and whatnot, uh, just right. really well. You <laughs> so become a cool. practitioner of the game. You start to embody the game better than anybody else, and thus people take notice in order to try and generalize that capacity into their own life and their own specific domain, possibly even yours, if they really like it. And so, yeah, just like we were talking about with Harry Potter, the point of a video game, just like the part of point of an education, is practical. It's to make you more capable of acting within the world, more relevant to your society and immediate surroundings, more helpful, more, uh, more able to embody a role, better, which means you're a better teacher or a better parent or a better friend because you more willingly wish to embody that role well and don't resent the fact that you, like everybody else, lives within sort of a structured reality and, uh, uh, has to play his role, you know, right? Isn't that like how it is? It's, <laughs> you, you're either like, oh man, this is my station in life and I, I hate it because I can't do anything about it. Or you're like, oh man, all, all the world's a stage and what, what matters is how I play my role, how I, how I totally. play the game because the game is everything. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I think that's, it's just a great privilege to play the game, <laughs> to be alive. Yeah. Totally. So I think we'll find that um, that sort of idea will help us very much when we undergo tremendous trauma with, with Cloud because I think that is the sort of thing that happens. During good times, it's very easy to talk about the treasure of life. During bad times, life as pain can be quite the burden. And so then, then I think that's when it really matters, understanding that life, life has meaning and purpose that one defines with one's peers uh, because then it is that goal and moving towards that goal and that potential positive emotion or at least relief of negative emotion in the future that keeps one going through that, those terrible times and not becoming like dying and not becoming like uh, Dante's Pierre de la Vigna down in um, Circle 7, Canto 13. Mm -hmm. Is he the tree? He's the tree. Yeah, yeah. Man, that is a sad, sad, sad part of that book. Well, you know, and he, he, like all the sinners in hell, doesn't take responsibility for his actions. It was the envy of others that pushed him to take his hand against himself. His, his, he, he acted unjustly against his just self, a logical contradiction, thus showing himself to be a tree, Aristotle's tree, the man who's no better than a bush because he contradicts himself. Um, <laughs> so there's a taste of things to come from the inferno, from me. Yeah. Uh, and we've gone through our own inferno today, right? This hellish desert that takes faith to get out of um mm -hmm. where you have to run towards the exact same mirage over and over and over again like doing the exact same practice over and over and over again in order to improve how you perform or staying on the same diet over and over and over again to finally lose weight it's like a necessary mirage that actually produces uh results in reality and that's what faith seems to be sticking with something that you're doing so it's it's good to see that that seems to be the message that the entire story is embodying and that 
that's that's the necessary aspect of enduring the underworld or the descent to the underworld, the Nakia or the the Diskinsis ad inferos of the Jungians. And uh, that there's a reason to go through dark times. And that if you and that at the very least, if you refuse to do it, you will become dying. There's no other option. Either dine or bear it in this case. Make your choice. Right. And I think we'll see it again in a pretty literal way if we um, make it to Cosmo Canyon for next time. I I think this is the part where we have to like actually kind of delve into the subterranean um, bowels of of Cosmo Canyon uh, and see kind of Red Thirteen's backstory. If that I don't remember if that's right now or if that's a bit later in the game. Yeah, another story of of potentially moral failure mm-hmm. and of not living up to the appropriate ideal of not appropriately acting the hero in the appropriate moment. It is uh, it is interesting that does seem to that does sound like quite the ghost that would haunt one for all eternity. Um, so I suppose William Wallace may have been right when he gave his great speech to the warriors behind him. Under some conditions, perhaps it's better not. To con- hmm. Sometimes it seems like it, it is important to sacrifice oneself for something greater than oneself. And that, mm-hmm. that seems like the best thing possible to do. Um, but I don't think we're going to be treated quite to that idea first. I, I, do, I do recall that Nanaki, as he calls himself, I think, doesn't he have a misconception about his father dying? Doesn't he think he was a coward, but he's actually a hero? I, I don't remember. I know there's something kind of, yeah, Freudian going on there, some kind of father-son type of thing, but I don't remember what it is exactly. Well, that'll be something we'll be into because that's the yeah. sort of thing that we like to consider. And we're trying to figure it all out and figure out the sort of people we are based on the sorts of things that we do. And so these are the sorts of things that we talk about. And Wes, it's been great. Again, I'm looking forward to another full week. Looks like the audio is good again for those of you who are listening to Night School. That's a really fun project too. So please keep listening in. We're going to be doing Song of Myself pretty soon again. Um, actually, you know, yep. maybe, maybe very soon because we like doing this. And well. Thank you, Wes. All right. Thanks again.